So in this long stretch of ordinary time before Advent, we are looking at spiritual formation over a lifetime. This is the second part of this series where we're switching from Peter to David as a person in formation. And probably all of you can recall that famous text about David, that he was a person after God's own heart, a person who would do whatever I wanted to be done. And of course, it's that sort of alignment that we're shooting for in our formation into Christ-likeness. So this morning, we're going to focus on the importance of concreteness in our spiritual formation, how stories and named persons and named places are the context for our formation. So what we want to think about as we begin is that spiritual formation is not academic. I mean, I suppose there are academics around it, things like church history or even psychology or therapy or spiritual direction. There are properly academic things that are around it, but formation itself, as we experience in ourselves, is not primarily academic or theoretical or abstract. That it happens over a lifetime, as we're looking at, and that it happens precisely, concretely within a story and among specifically named persons. So for instance, it would be one thing for a person or a church to say something abstract or theoretical like um, God is in solidarity with the poor or God has a preference for the poor or something like that. That's a very nice sounding theological abstraction. It's another thing to say a concrete school, Sonora, that you can find on Google Earth. It's there. It's concrete. And a named principle, Christine. See, formation only happens as it becomes concrete and named, whether it's our formation as a community caring for the community around us or our own individual formation. As long as it remains abstract or theoretical, nothing much actually happens. But when we make it concrete and named, then something good can happen. Even if you just think of that famous sentence, David was a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. Well, now just think about that. A man, concrete, after my own heart, God and he'll do everything. You see, there's a concreteness to it that is simultaneous, re, simultaneously relational, a man after my own heart, but he'll do everything I want him to do, and that brings a kind of concreteness to it where David's living into divine intention, but doing so within a relationship so that David's cooperation with God never defines the relationship, nor does it cheapen it. Like working with God in concrete ways doesn't cheapen you. It doesn't turn your relationship with God into something utilitarian so that, as I often say, you know, you're never just going to be turned into like a hoe in God's shed. You know, you're not like his little rake that he keeps in the garage somewhere. That's not what's in view here. This is deeply relational, deeply personal, but it has an aspect to it that is concrete. Now, if you think Theological abstractions, which, by the way, I'm not down on. They have their place. But that is a very different thing than saying story. Story is the way that God communicates himself to us. Uh, the Bible primarily comes to us as story. Not, not completely, but primarily it comes to us as story. It's the way God communicates himself, not in deep theological constructions or in elaborate philosophy. But we, as we seek our formation, have a habit, a historical habit, of extracting from the Bible spiritual principles, right? How many of you have been involved in Sunday school classes where you are extracting from the story of the Bible spiritual principles or reading books that did the same or pulling from the story moral guidelines or theological truths? 
And then I love the way Eugene Peterson gets this. So now try to picture this with me. Pulling out of the Bible, spiritual principles, moral guidelines, and theological truths, and then corseting ourselves with them in order to force on ourselves a godly shape to our lives. So we take these abstractions, these principles, and we corset ourselves, thinking that if we just pull tight enough on these things, then surely they will change my shape. And of course, it doesn't work. Rather, story is the gospel way. See, story isn't imposed on you like a corset. Story invites us into its already and ongoing life. When you think of the word story, you realize that our role is to enter imaginatively and purposefully into this story that's already going on. See, it's story that carries plot. It's story that introduces characters and their relations one to another. It's story which has a beginning and an end. A trinity of beings who before there was anything, a trinity of beings in relationship one to another, before there was uttered, let there be light. There was the beginning of a story that gave purpose to light. And then you have the ups and downs of this story until it finds its completion in the new heavens and the new earth. Now see, that story is not something you can put on yourself like an abstraction that corsets you. That kind of story invites you in and invites you to wonder, What do you want? Would you like that story? Would you like to live in that story? It stands before you and I as an invitation. It's story that shows us what the world is, right? So if you you think of what I just said, the world as material as it is, and in some cases, a very concreteness to that materiality, the world cannot be reduced to its materialness because what lies behind it is person who spoke it into existence and who has a purpose for it. And that purpose will be fulfilled. And so story tells us what the world is and it tells us what it means to be human, right? Just think of creation. Now, now you first humans, you, you come work with me in this. Noah, dang, things are going bad. Help me out here, right? Enter this story. Abraham, I'm gonna make you into a great nation, and you are gonna help me foment this story. Think of Matthew 10 or Luke 9 or Luke 10 when Jesus sends out to the apostles. He sends them out into this ongoing story and then Revelation 22:5, And we will rule and reign with him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. It's that story that forms us. But note the Bible doesn't give us models. Or if it does, you would think it could have done better than David. I mean, David would have been fired as a clergyman over and over again. He would not have had a long career as a clergy person. But it gives us persons within a story, not polished ideals, but real people like David with all of his beauty and godly power and heartbreaking sin. Peterson, in his book, A Leap Over the Wall, that we'll be working with some in this series, says of David, as an instance of humanity in himself, David isn't much. He has little wisdom to pass on to us about how to live successfully. He was an unfortunate parent, an unfaithful husband. And from a purely historic point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain with a talent for poetry. But David's importance isn't in his morality or in his military prowess, but in his experience of and witness to God. Every event of David's life was a confrontation with God. And this is what we can learn from. It's not that he's a model of something. It's that he tells us a story that we can then begin to live into. 
So David's story tells us that formation is a life of dealing with God. Versus, have you ever had that deep frustration with somebody in your family or a neighbor or somebody at work? It's something where you, you, know, you find yourself saying, I just don't want anything more to do with him or with her, right? You just remember those frustrating moments? I, I, just, I don't want anything more to do with them. Well, David's story is what puts that cho- choice before us. What do you want? And if you want a life more than mere biology, then you are simply gonna have to deal with God. And this is what David's life teaches us. That my biology did take me one way, with Bathsheba. And my biology took me another way as I wrote Psalm 119. My biology took me other ways as a military person, and as a leader, as a king. But I never had just the life of biology. I wanted a life beyond biology. And therefore, I had to do with God. I had to deal with him. And we have to deal with him in sickness, in starting a new business, and getting laid off, in sin, in marital issues. And the heartbreak of parenting with friends and families and co-workers, bad traffic, no traffic. These details all find their meaning in the story of God. And without those concrete details, we actually can't have a story with God. In fact, if you look for a moment at your reading in Samuel, you'll notice that, as is common, this comes to us in story form. Saul is already being rejected as king, but people are mourning over it because he's not dead yet and people don't know what to do. And so... The Lord asked Samuel this very storied question, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? And it continues along a narrative plot. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. And then you you hear now the plot line of God. And this is one of those places where Samuel had to decide, do I want to have to do with God? For God says, I've chosen one of his sons to be king and you're to anoint for me the one I indicate. But when the first son comes out, uh, you know, he's the kind of person that today we would call telegenic, right? You know how people run for president or high office these days and they always have to pass this test of being telegenic? Well, that's the kind of thing that's happening there. The first son comes out highly telegenic, right? Like Mitt Romney, right? Just highly telegenic. This guy, yeah, this is probably the one. And the Lord says, no, actually, that's not the one. Don't merely consider their bodies that they're, tall or strong or good looking. For as we've all heard this a hundred times, the Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, the text says, but the Lord looks, and it's usually translated in English at the heart. It's actually better translated for the Lord looks into the heart, not just at the heart. He looks into the heart. And of course, this is what's happening with the Pharisees. And we'll say more about that in a moment. So when it says the Lord looks into the heart, it means that he looks into the core of a person. And in David, he's saying, I have found somebody whose heart is attuned to me and to my values and who will be ever increasingly drawn to them, which is character development and formation over a lifetime, right? Because isn't what happens is we do make a decision that says, I love God, I love what he's up to, I love his vision and values, to kind of put it in modern terms. Right? I like what he's up to, I like the way he's doing it, I'm in with God. And then moments come in which we're not, right? We, we end up behaving in ways that contradict our kind of stated inner vows, right? It happens to us pretty much all day, every day. But what's at play here is what's the trajectory and which way are you heading? What do you want? And as we want the action of God in our life and the action of God through our lives, we will ever increasingly be drawn to them. And as we're drawn to them and shaped into them, that is how character is developed 
and formation happens over a lifetime. So then the end of the story, Samuel takes the horn of oil, anoints David in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And I just want to take a little moment here, a little sidebar to say, I can hear lots of us saying, wait, 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 now slow down, Samuel. I'm an evangelical, and I'm sort of only cautiously open to the things of the Spirit. So I'm not sure I want to be anointed with them, right? Anointed means like pour over. I'm not sure I want my life to be poured over with the things of the Spirit. I'm like, okay, like maybe, like I'm not a you know, committed cessationist, I'm, uh, you know, but I don't know. I don't know about this sort of life in the Spirit. Well, I just want to suggest to you, you do with this what you might, that your quarrel is not with historic Pentecostalism. Your quarrel is not with 1970s charismatic Christianity. Your quarrel is not with present renewals, wherever that be happening today, and whatever you think about them. If you have any sense of a quarrel within you about the place of the Spirit in formation over a lifetime, your quarrel was with these ancient texts that apparently God thought it was really important if you were going to be his king and if you were gonna come to that kingship with all this previously existing brokenness If you're going to actually execute on the things of God over your life, God thought it was pretty important that you be filled with the Spirit, that you have the capacity of the Spirit. This is what it means when it comes powerfully upon David. And it's just, I wanna say a reminder to us that both in our formation and in our callings and ministry, we cannot do without, in my humble opinion, the Spirit of the Lord being powerfully upon us as well. So the Psalm we read antiphonally together gives us a peek into this personal, concrete, storied existence that that David had with God as he lived into his anointing and dealt with the people and events of his life and story. If you you look at the, the psalm just very quickly, just try to feel the concrete personalness of this. God, I cry for understanding according to your word. Do you hear the concreteness in that? Like, of course, David had subjective feelings going on him. This is what made him cry out for understanding, but he cried out in this very concrete way, according, we might say, to the unfolding plan of God. Hear the personalness and give my request your personal attention and rescue me on the terms of your promise. Now, can you see David writing this psalm and thinking back to this moment where he's anointed by Samuel and the power of the Spirit comes powerfully on him. He remembers that moment as the moment of promise and says, God, give me your personal attention. Rescue me from the ways I've wandered according to the terms of your promise. And may your hand be ready to help me for I've chosen your precepts. And then I love the way the message gets this last line. And Lord, should I wander off like a lost sheep? Seek me for I'll recognize your voice. I'll remember that moment. When amongst all my brothers, the youngest, kind of nerdiest, you know, out-tending sheep when my brothers were athletes and actors and bankers and engineers. I was just sort of a little guy out watching the sheep, but I remember that moment when, surprise, surprise, you found me. And so deal with me in that very concrete way. Well, this concreteness, this personalness, this heartness, when you think of our gospel reading this morning, is what the Pharisees missed and what Jesus was constantly correcting in them. So see, they abstracted everything. They studied in microscopic detail and memorized large portions of scripture, but they kept acting contrary to God, which of course raises the question, why? How does such a thing happen? 
How do you study God in microscopic detail? How do you get a PhD in God? And how do you memorize huge portions of the Torah, what we think of as the first five books of the Bible? And yet, according to Jesus at least, consistently live contrary to God. Well, we can say, given what we're doing this morning, that they missed the narrative. And they missed the author of the narrative in that process. And this is why Jesus says, well, why do you scribes and Pharisees? Hypocrites. Well, why? Why are they hypocrites? For, Jesus says, you neither enter yourselves into this story, nor do you allow others who want to enter in. You keep them bound, corseted into theological abstractions. You keep them corseted, telling them that they'll be shaped appropriately if they'll just give a tithe even down to their mint seeds or their dill seeds but not at all be cultivating a heart of generosity. It's just keeping this abstracted law. And so Jesus likens this to cleaning the outside of a cup or a plate or the outside of a tomb. And the whole point of these is that, but that inside, he says, you're full of greed and self-indulgent or hypocrisy or lawlessness. And again, you just wanna think, wait a minute, how? I mean, they tried to keep the law, but yes, they kept it in this sort of outside way. As I keep saying, this abstracted, distant, sort of vague interaction with the law, not a person in his story. Are you feeling me here? See, David interacted with a person, God and his story. As God's story intersected with David's at his calling and anointing, from that moment on, David did not deal with abstractions of Hebrew history. He was dealing with a person who called him, and who, if you don't know anything else from reading the Psalms, you know that this was a deeply, richly relational thing that David had going with God for all of his ups and downs. And this is precisely what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the teachers of the law don't have. They have this vague sort of law. It's not personal, it's not storied. And if you don't hear anything else I've said this morning, I want you to hear this, that that kind of surface obedience can be a way of keeping God at a safe distance. Not sure I really want you mucking around in the concrete aspects of my life, but I can do a kind of religion that keeps you at this sort of safe distance. And this is what the story of David over these next weeks will encourage us out of, to the degree that, that, and that, some of that's in all of us. But as we read the blood and guts and concrete story of David, our great prayer is that something will happen that moves from just cleaning the outside of our life to moving into the inside place where we live into or don't live into stories. So wrapping this up, to be true to the intention of our creator, when our story intersects with his, when you have that moment where you learn who you are, I mean, none of us are gonna be David. I mean, you may not have ever thought this, but you know there's more detailed about the life of David than any other human life in the whole Bible. We know more of David than anybody else in the Bible. Nobody has a longer story than David. And we learn from him that when we're true to the intention of the creator, that is the path to virtue. That's the path to the highest form of integrity. That's the path that gets us away from a mere surfacey kind of holding God off kind of religion. But you won't do that. You really won't accept that calling on your life unless you can wrestle this to the ground. God means my good, and he has done well by me. He doesn't owe me anything. God wants my good. I can, I can trust that. I, I can give myself to that. 
And it's even better when you can say, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do me part. From this life, God has done well by me. I have no beefs with him. He doesn't owe me a thing. And I can then just give myself to that. You see, even if we had never sinned, we would still need God. I think maybe one of the worst little aspects of evangelical theology is it's pigeonholing Jesus into a mechanism for salvation, as if the second person of the Trinity would have had no meaning had Adam and Eve not sinned. Do you hear what I just said? This is what we do to God with these abstractions. We actually hold off who he really is, as if Jesus wouldn't have had any meaning if you didn't have sex in high school with somebody you weren't married to or didn't do LSD or didn't cheat with your time card, well, then Jesus would have no meaning? Really, it's our sin that gives him meaning? No, we would have needed Jesus just to walk into our calling. You just hear Adam and Eve going, okay, let's do this. Jesus, what's it mean? I apprentice myself to you, second person of the Trinity. I give myself to you. Teach me what it means to live into this. But I know how it goes. I've been at this long enough and especially long enough with young people that a big fear that's just all over in our culture today is that it's just not fun to be holy. You do go down that path and God will not do well by you. You go down that path and it's constraining. You go down that path and you lose freedom. You don't wanna go down that path. That's just not fun. It's gotta be a whole lot more fun to do other things. And so it feels often in our formation in Christ that we're trying to follow God, but it sometimes feels unnatural. And so then this thing happens where we think, okay, well, I just need to give up on that then and just go do my thing because this is feeling unnatural to me. And if we learn anything from the story of David as we learn, and from his writing in the Psalms, we just learn, you just stick with it. You have to get through the point to where it's not unnatural. I don't watch much, I gotta finish here, but I don't watch much sports anymore, uh, but I do confess that on Sunday afternoons I take naps to golf. And uh, there were times in my life where I played a lot of golf, and I don't know of anything, well, maybe dancing was worse for me in terms of feeling unnatural. And so golfers do these very weird things, like sometimes when they're practicing, they'll put a towel under their arm because they're trying to do in golf what's known as stay connected so that when they swing, their body stays connected because if they get disconnected, the towel falls out. And so they do these spiritual disciplines that allow them to get past the moments of feeling unnatural. And this is what we see just all over in the life of David. I mean, I totally get it that a naked woman bathing had a certain natural feel to it. I completely get it. And so in that moment, you know, spiritual commitments can feel something other than that. But I wanna encourage you as we go through this life of David and all his ups and downs that you see your ups and downs and you just learn to say to yourself, I'm just sticking with this. This does feel a little unnatural. And it does feel like if I lived another kind of life that I might be happier and more content, but I'm just gonna stick with this and I'll get through this moment of feeling unnatural. And there will come, there will come a time when I'm actually able to live into the story of God in a more natural way. So when we come to our quiet time here, we said when we were beginning that as modern Christians, we've had the habit of extracting from the Bible spiritual principles and moral guidelines and theological truths. And then as Peterson said, corseting ourselves in them in order to force a godly shape on our lives. And in our quiet time now, I wanna invite you to just wonder, 
with the presence of the Spirit and the love of God to wonder, is there a way that you have been doing that to yourself? Trying to force onto you from theological abstractions, corseting effect that would shape you rather than giving yourself to the concreteness of God in his story and living in that.